I'd like to acknowledge the Bunurong and Gurnai Kurnai people as traditional custodians of South Gippsland and pay respect to their elders, past, present, and future, for they hold the memories, traditions, culture, and hopes of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people of Australia and of our Shire. I'm Craig Privet. It is Thursday, the 23rd of September, and you're listening to South Gippsland Shire Council's election podcast. In this episode, we hear from Moya Davies, uh, lives in Foster, running in the Coastal Wards, and was on council well before the sacked council and has put her hand up again. This episode was recorded on Wednesday, the 29th of September. Uh, we started the recording at 8 a.m. Enjoy. Cord, and then you'll just maybe have to say yes on your side, I think. Ah, uh, yes, I know the meeting is being recorded. <clears throat> cool. Today I'm with Moya Davies. She's a past councillor, lives in Foster. She's putting her hand up again and running in the Coastal Ward. Uh, Moya's quick to point out that she wasn't on the council uh, that was sacked. Um, and I think we need to jump straight into there and just get a quick answer from Moya. What years were you on the council? Uh, 2008 till 2016. Yeah, so um, Moya's skipped that generation and she's put her hand back up again to... to Go again. Now, the first question I love to ask everyone, Moya, what is your favourite childhood memory? Um, well, I was interested listening to Sarah and, and Sue's because mine were quite similar in a way, but different. I was born in the Omeo Hospital and um, I spent my early years on Bandara Station, which is um, 13 gateways from the Blue Duck. And so we were fairly remote and fairly self-resilient. Um, we went into town once a week and maybe twice a week to collect the mail at the Blue Duck. So I remember, you know, playing on the farm. Animals were a big part of our lives. Um, go, floating down the Bandara River on tire tubes. That was one of the most exciting things that we used to do. And then my dad was also a bit of a uh, mountain cattleman he used to go up and bring the brumbies in so he rode a brumby stallion and um, as a tiny child I would be on the pack horse taken up into the mountains and spend time in the bush huts so that was my memory of childhood. Sounds a bit magical something that might be hard to find nowadays <laughs> um, again. Um, cool well you've been open about being happy to talk about your unique family. So would you like to tell us a little bit about that? Certainly. Um, John and I have four biological children and two adopted from Ethiopia. So um, the girls have been a big part of our life and certainly they've enriched our lives in many ways. Um, so we have three girls and three boys and the two girls, are, two of the girls are from Ethiopia. So it's been a very large family and um, very busy. So we've been involved in all the different sporting and school activities. I think at one stage I had six educational institutions that we were involved with, you know, so all the newsletters, all the, you know, 
things that had to be dealt with. And then there were the sporting interests and dance and all of those things. So our lives were consumed for many years in just raising a family. In fact, through the 80s, you know, if I hear some music from the 80s, I don't know it because <laughs> we were working and looking after children. We were so isolated in our own little world of just, you know, doing what needed to be done from a day-to-day -day basis. So I've organised, um, we're involved with a group called ACASA, which is Australian African Adoption Support Group. And I've organised 25 camps over 25 years to gather families from all over Australia um, to come together um, with their children, you know, mixed families, um, adopted and, and whatever, and we celebrate that. And so on the Saturday night at our camp, we usually have around 150 people and we have an Ethiopian banquet and um, all dress in Ethiopian costumes. So that has been a big part of our lives and certainly been very important for our girls and their connection to community and how community works. So um, that has been a big part of our lives. And following on from that, um, over the last few years, I've been volunteering at the River Nile Learning Centre and School in Melbourne, which is in North Melbourne. Um, I've been able to do that and I've really missed it. So we've made a lot of friends in the um, communities that the River Nile touches. So everything from Af Afghanistan to China. Um, so I used to go along as Girl Friday. I spend two days at the school and help do all sorts of odd jobs. I became very good at uh, learner's permits and very good at, you know, because learner's permits and getting your license is getting an ID. So for a lot of migrant communities, that's really important. So I have really enjoyed my involvement with that. Actually, one of the girls um, who adopted from Ethiopia actually is the, um, the principal of that school and that's how I became involved with it. So I think Fantastic. that's pretty well covered. Family, does it? <laughs> yes. Um... Oh, so kids are actually spread all over the world. We have a son in Austria, married with a child, and then we have a daughter in Druin with two children and a son in um, Lindeno with three children, and then a son in Lingatha with two children. And all of them have been adversely affected by COVID, of course, trying to work and um, you know, do homeschooling and all of that. And then our poor girls who we worry about are locked down in a flat in North Melbourne. So they're continuing to work. Misika's a teacher and Rahal is um, working with multi uh, cultural, uh, multicultural arts Victoria and multicultural communities Victoria. Yes, I, that's I, us. I, I do love to recognise the tougher nature of these lockdowns for people in a city compared to how we get locked down out here. Um, it's definitely much harder. We've got a lot of friends in north side of Melbourne as well. <laughs> One bedroom apartments, no verandas, nighttime curfews. It's um, it's very different up there. Lockdowns. Actually, what gave the girls? They had a, a little chihuahua that was their treasured pet when they were at home. And while they were in Melbourne, I said no, the the dog Sebastian couldn't go down. But once they've gone into lockdown, we sent Sebastian down, and he's a great comfort. They love to have him, and of course that gets them out walking about and those sorts of things. 
Yeah, super important. Um, so in your announcements in the paper, uh, I just highlighted four words there that I'd like you to talk to um, and how you see that working. Um, listening to the community. So how do you see the council, um, if you were to get on, how do you see them really creating situations where listening to the community is open, transparent, valid and productive? It's always tricky connecting into communities, um, but you do have to continually be listening. Uh, the thing that we are hoping for is councillors who are truly representative of their community and part of the many groups that make up those communities. So um, having, you know, a solid uh, understanding of how communities work is really something that a councillor can bring to the table. Um, so for example, our community in Foster, we've done a range of ways of engaging with council. Our planning for real process was quite a unique process. Um, we, uh, on election day, we set up a, a table with a big map of our um, area of the coastal promontory ward. And we then asked the community what they wanted. And so people would put flags all over the map. And then we had um, a highly trained person in our community who managed to pull that into a community plan. Now, all of those community plans are still there. And much of what was proposed through the plan for real process has been achieved. So I guess what I'm saying is, it changes over time and we need to be continually adap adapting and working through, not going over the same thing over and over again, because most of these communities have already got, you know, community plans, but we do need to review them and spend time in the community to understand what the needs are. And all of our communities are quite unique. Um, we have 28 towns, all very unique and in a way, that's been a weakness for us in South Gippsland in the past in that we haven't had major, one major big centre. We've had 28 little communities that have very unique and different, like Fish Creek's a very unique community. Menion's a very unique community. Welshpool and Tura and Foster are all very unique and play a role in making up the fabric of our South Gippsland. And we need to work with that. We need to understand what the communities want and then work with them to achieve that. And I think council has done that very effectively at times. Do you see open council meetings again? And I would certainly like to see that, but the problem, the reason that they've set up, the, the reason that administrators and the officers have moved to more closed uh, meetings is because of the a number of people who've actually abused their privilege. They've go in there um, berating council, asking the same questions over and over again, and really um, making it very difficult to run an effective meeting when you just have angry people saying the same thing over and over again. And often um, the opportunity to talk with the more balanced members of the community and bring them in is inhibited because of these I'd call them victatious litigants, really. They just continually to barrage council. You see it in the paper, the letters, the um, negativity um, that 
exist. And so, yes, I would like to see more open council meetings, but I don't believe that councillors and council officers are there to be a target for an, a very negative minority. I agreed with that. Uh, as far as councillors shouldn't be targeted, they're putting their hand up. Uh, councillors don't really earn an, a true income out of the sacrifice they make for these, well, it's three years for uh, anyone who gets in this round. So um, I'm an advocate for the openness, obviously, uh, thus this podcast, but um, yeah, we definitely can't have anyone feeling threatened, that's for sure. Um, well, I think it is about conversations and, you know, truly understanding where people are coming from and trying to find a middle ground. But the tragedy in it all is that you can never please everyone all the time. No. Well, and as soon as you start to try, you probably please nobody. Um, when you were last on council, what were the biggest challenges in getting things done? Um, the biggest challenges? Um, well, when I first went to council, I felt like a rabbit in the spotlight, really. Um, it was a huge learning curve. I came into it purely from a community perspective, and it was a massive learning curve. But um, there were good people on council who gave good advice and um, I managed to find my way through that. Um, I remember making the hard decisions around the rural land use and some people, the rural land use strategy, and some people will be quite critical of that, but there's never a perfect uh, result and sometimes you have to come up with the best results you can. At one stage, um, that became a very contentious issue. And I ended up having a massive poster in Karamburra put up by the developers. So there were five of us who made the decision around rural land use strategy, and therefore council was able to make a decision and move on. There were detractors on council, which is okay. It's good to have the conversation. Um, and it's important to listen to that opinion. But then when council makes a decision, we move on. But at this stage, developers in Karamburra took exception to the decisions we were making because of course they had a lot of self-interest. And so the five, five councillors who were making the decision plus the planning minister had the privilege of having a massive poster up in Karamburra. Um, out of touch with South Gippsland. It was probably one of my most trying experiences, but something when I look back on it, I was proud that I was able to work with council, work with council officers, understand what I felt was the best for South Gippsland. And we do need to work towards protecting our uh, precious farmland and the interface between farmland and um, you know, rural lifestyle and that sort of thing is a challenging line to draw. And we needed to come up with some decisions that would suit the whole of South Gippsland. And it's tricky because, you know, uh, there, as you know, there's very diverse regions and somehow within that strategy, we had to come up with a plan that would work for South Gippsland. I stand firm on that now. I'm proud of that decision that I was able to be a part of. And I, um, I feel that council has lost its way over the intervening years 
because you do need to be able to make a decision and move on. I always admired David Lewis from Mirbu North, who was a councillor. He was passionate about Mirbu North and he fought vehemently for Mirbu North and he had very strong opinions. But as soon as the decision was made, he walked away from that table, there was no animosity and we were on to the next thing. So I think those sorts of councillors are the ones to admire. Awesome. Now, for someone like um, new to the area uh, and have never been focused on local politics, and I'm open about that up until these last few years, do you want to explain what that uh, rural land strategy decision was and what was the other option? Well, it was trying to strike a balance between, well, the, the problem that South Gippsland's had back in the days pre-amalgamation um, there was this rule that you could um, sell off pockets of land. Um, the thought, thinking behind this was to give the farmers an capital to reinvest in their farm. So there's little pockets all around the Shire that were created, particularly in what was the old Shire of South Gippsland. And, um, you know, in most cases, that, that's been okay. I live on Fuller Road and we have a number of pockets um, around our area that were developed in that period where um, through the planning process, um, pockets of land were uh, sold off, little small lots and houses were built on them. And that's fine for a period of time, like in the time that I've been on Fuller Road, there's probably been more than 40 or 50 houses built on Fuller Road. So we need to understand and try and manage how we manage land into the future. And that is critical um, because it's how we're going to um, protect farm, farming land and how we're going to enable our lifestylers to live in harmony with Farming land. So basically the rural land use strategy tried to strike a balance in all of that, but it was contentious because, um, you know, for a lot of people that was their um, superannuation, you know, I should be able to just skive off as much many blocks of land as I want and sell them off and make profit. Well, that's not always going to be in the best interest of the land and planning decisions need to be made around the best interest of the land, not of the people, really. The people are just custodians. So um, obviously uh, affordable dwellings and the ability to live somewhere right now is very hard. Um, so the one of our cleaners used to live in Foster full-time a whole life. It's now pushed up to the north of Tura renting because there's just nothing... And uh, so she's got to travel from the north of Tura down to Sandy Point uh, to do her work. There, I spoke to another councillor, um, or sorry, candidate, excuse me, who was telling me a story a couple of days ago about someone they know is looking, having to move to Morwell or Maui or even over that way to find somewhere to live uh, because there's just nothing in the region. So you have your farmers and then you call them lifestylers. Uh, which would probably be buying off those blocks. But um, there's just the regular day community. People have always lived here that can't afford to buy and need to rent, but there's just not enough housing for them. How does council play a role in 
opening up land for um, our areas to grow? Well, I think um, council needs needs to understand the issues and certainly advocate with state and federal government to achieve its outcomes. I mean, I'm seeing a lot of development around Moster. There's certainly a lot more units and those sorts of things. The other thing that I'm noticing more of is less families and more single people living in dwellings. And so look, we're going to have to continually work with the community to, to achieve the best possible outcomes we can, but I don't know of a silver bullet issue. And part of the reason is people leaving Melbourne and um, lifting the prices of everything. I'm hearing, you know, everything's being sold way over the asking price in South Gippsland at the moment. That's going to have implications for, you know, people with lower income trying to find housing. And it's also going to have implications uh, for our rates ongoing. Um, one of the big issues in the coastal promontory ward is our large number of non-resident ratepayers. Um, what do we do? We say that you can't have a second residence. Um, how does that work? Um, I don't know. These are issues that will need to be worked through at the council table and certainly a housing strategy is in the process of being developed. Yes, I, I, yeah, affordable housing is just a big one. Uh, I think it's a major issue through the whole region and council have to um, play a part in that, I feel. Um, so yeah, it's uh, interesting to hear how that, uh, that history uh, happened back then that I wasn't aware of, where those lots were allowed to be broken up and offer more places for people to live. And then that was um, changed. What year was that um, adjusted with council? Um, I think, well, the amalgamations happened in, was it 1996? Right. It's a while. Oh, look, I'm. I'd have. I'm sorry. I'd have to take that on notice. I'd have to go oh, and yeah. look it up. But yeah, that's We've been fine. the greatest in South Gippsland for more than twenty years, yeah. and um, uh, well, it must be a lot more than twenty years. But we're still suffering a little because when that amalgamation process took place, it was political, and um, a lot of the councils didn't really relate to each other at all. Um, you know, we had a lovely little shire of Gippsland and relating to Warrail and Currumburra Shire. And it was a challenging process. It actually took probably 10 years for the healing of that. And then trying to come up with, um, you know, a greater view for South Gippsland. Um, I'd have to check the date. I think it was 1996. <laughs> 98, something like that. That's right. It gives us a ballpark. There's a lot of people in the region like myself that have been in the region maybe 10 years and under. So there's a lot of history that you have um, in your brain that yeah, well, the, the, the <laughs> we Jeff, don't necessarily... The Jeff, the Jeff Kennett um, amalgamation of councils was a massive thing. Um, I can yeah. send that through to you, Craig. I'll check the date. Yeah. No problem. Um, so... I was excited to see in your announcement in the paper about uh, advocating to state government for subsidised sewer schemes uh, for our unsewered towns. Um, how, how important it is for, for council to come together in that advocation? Well, I'll look, I, council's role is um, to advocate to try and achieve better outcomes for our, our smaller towns. Um, the issue is, of course, it's not a council issue, but we can um, influence 
and talk about things. Um, we did manage to achieve the Loch Nyora Puwong sewage scheme, which has enabled the development in that area. Um, there was a sewage scheme for Waratah. Um, however, Sandy Point didn't want to become a part of that at that stage. I think if development is to progress in particular our coastal areas, we, we do need to deal with the sewage issues because um, of the environmental concerns. Um, it's a pressure of population, you know, if probably for eight months of the year, there's no problem. But during that critical summer period, there is a major problem for some towns. And we recognise that. I think all of us understand how serious it is. Um, coming up with solutions is harder, but I think, you know, Fish Creek particularly, um, Venus Bay, they're issues that have probably been in the too hard basket for a long time. And certainly council has a role to advocate and do the best they can. But it does then influence our planning. We really need to be aware of the planning implications. And certainly septic systems have improved and ensuring that septic systems are operational and working effectively has become another issue for council. So often these issues uh, grow and become an expense to council because then council needs to employ officers to check that septic systems are working and all of those sort of issues. So it is complex. I think we as human beings need to understand, have a much greater understanding of our waste and our effect on the environment and ensuring that, understanding that there's a cost to waste and how we manage that. Sorry, that, no. that's one of my hot causes. Yeah, yeah, I, I, all good. Um, so uh, obviously you're in the coastal ward um, and there's a strong map, Morgan there on, on a greens, he's doing quite a lot of um, campaigning around climate change and asking for a declaration of a climate emergency. Um, so given you have eight grandchildren, how do you balance uh, the climate challenges and the future of your grandchildren with um, the needs of um, say the farming community who might not be so excited about a climate emergency? Well, I'm a member of um, Farmers for Climate Action. So I, I believe that um, we do have to acknowledge that climate change or the change in the climate is happening and we need to mitigate the effects of that. Um, I mean, the storms that we've seen in the last couple of years, the power outages, all of that, we need to um, understand how we're impacting that and make plans to do something about it. Now, it's not my area of expertise, but it's certainly something I am concerned about. Um, as far as making decisions or preempting any decision I might make on council, I would have to understand the cost implications for council and work through that. I'm certainly doing as much reading as I can at the moment, and there's certainly lots of stuff to try and absorb and I'm not a scientist so I yep. would have to take a lot of advice um, but I, I do understand you know we live in a beautiful place and we're pouring cement over the best parts of Victoria how do we ensure that there is you know something left for future generations is of great concern to me 
Definitely. Um, I sat in on a, um, a webinar that Sue Plowright organised and that had the couple of councillors from Bass Coast. Um, I'll find that and I'll make sure it's on the YouTube channel I've set up for this process. But um, it was Bass Coast councillors, two of them talking to, because um, they've declared a climate emergency. And I logged on because I, you know, climate emergencies are very emergency it's a very triggering word um so it's like what does that really mean for council and essentially what i got out of it is just planning <laughs> planning and and not forgetting that it's an issue and putting thought around these challenges into every policy and strategy yes and i, I believe that that would be um what needs to take place anyway i think council is trying to deal with the issues in fact in the um in the local law uh, 2020 in the legislation we yeah. are required we are the only level of government at, at local government to we are the only level of government required to um consider future generations and to consider climate change and to make planning decisions around that um i think it's understanding our waste, you know, managing everything in our lives better, trying to understand our impact on the environment and um, how we can do all of these things better. So there is never an easy solution to this. Um, and look, happy to consider, you know, a climate emergency for South Gippsland, but I would need to understand where the council offices are at, where the uh, strategies and plans are all that, what the implications would be, the costs, et cetera. I mean, some of those big planning documents cost something like $200,000 to yes. get in place. Um, we, we're going to be faced with our coastal strategy. That's one of the first big issues that we will need to deal with in the new council and um, understanding all of the implications and costs involved. I am very concerned about you know, all of these big plans that are done and then put on the shelf to gather dust. I think we need to be getting down some of these plans, dusting them off and reusing some of the material that's there. Um, uh, yeah, so I'm certainly concerned for my grandchildren and what we're going to leave behind. We have lived in a very privileged age and I think things like the pandemic and um, other things that are happening in our climate, like the severe weather events we're experiencing are all saying, hang on, have a think about what you're doing and try and do it better. Because if we don't, we, we're going to leave behind a mess and I don't want to be part of that. Yeah, fair enough. And then one last point that it's going to help me understand this uh, term of phrase, because I'm a north of Byron Bay suburban coastal kid who's done lots of hospitality business and sales and travel. So farming is something that's just not in my world and hasn't been. So when um, people position themselves around the phrase protecting farmers right to farm, do you want to just talk to that a bit more? Like what are you protecting them from? <laughs> and what is a farmer scared of that they're going to lose? Um, well, I think um, we need to realise that quite often there's conflict between um, rural lifestylers and farmers. That's certainly been something that's happened in the past, you know, uh, we need to ensure that farming practices are improving and appropriate, but we also need to, you know, it's farming 
is a very complex business and a long hours, early mornings, late nights. And if you've bought a lovely home next to a farm and all of a sudden you discover that they're cutting hay at 10 o'clock at night or 12 o'clock at night or whatever, you might become offended by that. But you need to understand that the farmer has a very small window of opportunity to actually harvest that hay. And it might mean that he doesn't want to be working, you know, 15 hour days, but he has to at that period of time to get his hay in. So it's about understanding that there are issues about food production and certainly trying to manage the conflict between um, rural expectation and those of the farming community, because certainly I've had a number of experiences where, you know, there is conflict and it's such a shame. I think often dialogue and trying to strengthen um, relationships certainly would make a difference um, in doing that. So, yes, I, I think understanding that if we want food in the future, we need to understand that, you know, farming is a very complex business and needs to be given the opportunity to flourish. Um, but what that looks like, I don't know. I've, there's bad farmers as well who don't do things very well either. I'd be the first to criticise them too. Okay. Yes, it's a very um, eclectic and varied shire, um, I feel. And look, I, I see um, challenges coming from this post-COVID influx of um yeah just the the sea changes that have um really decided to escape that city bought down here at prices we never thought possible and um then they're going to settle and then all their city friends will come down to visit and go oh where the hell is this place this is amazing it's beautiful uh we're seeing in sandy points for all the holiday homes first time visitors because they not, might normally go to the peninsula or around the other side of the bay towards lawn but that was all booked out or too expensive so you know they've just sort of followed the map along the coastline and went oh what's this sandy point place or venus bay and so there's a lot of new eyes in the area then i look at the prom and they're 20 million dollar project over the next 10 years to attract another 200,000 people down this way um i feel there's another wave about to come with whatever anyone might have seen before it's it's on its way so i just feel the council have a you know a strong role to play in setting us up uh, for that inevitable change through you know getting us more well, affordable housing I've, I've... And over the last 40 years, we've seen this happening in the area. We've had different uh, rounds of people coming in. Uh, generally, I've found that in our, our community has been very welcoming. We've really enjoyed uh, welcoming the new experience, the, well, the new uh, ideas, um, and also the wealth that these people bring into our community to help us flourish. And certainly many of these people become involved in, you know, they're great volunteers, they do fabulous things. And so it enriches our community enormously. And certainly the increased population into the future, we are going to have to be very careful about how we manage that. And 
you know, there'll be checks and balances in there that we'll have to work with. Um, none of it is easy. Um, there are hard decisions that will need to be made, but um, we need to protect, you know, the food bowl aspect of South Gippsland because that's what we all um, hang our hat on, I guess, is, you know, the rolling hills and, you know, the livestock and the, the farming that takes place. Um, I'm sure farming will change. I think council has a role to work with uh, farmers to improve their farming practices. You know, we everything involve, evolves and changes. In terms of all the people that are coming down, look, I don't think, I think it will absorb them as we always have done. And yep. it'll, enrich our community. I'm positive about it. I'm a glass half full person. I believe we can make it work. Um, but sometimes it does take compromise and sometimes it will take some difficult conversations. Um, but I think we can do it. I really do. Everything's I am possible. About, yeah, I'm concerned about the lifting prices, but then, you know, that's gone on forever. Uh, well, in my lifetime, you know, prices have always gone up. Um, yeah, affordable housing, though, is one of the biggest shocks that I've had uh, in my world, just transitioning to a full time life down here, income wise, it's very different. So when the prices down here and properties start creeping up to getting closer to what you might pay in out of Melbourne, uh, on a country well, wage, it starts to get hard. The prices in Melbourne don't seem to have dropped. I don't understand how that works. Yeah. Prices in Melbourne continue to rise as well. So I, I, I'm sorry, but I don't understand how that is possible. So um, one of my daughters is looking at buying a flat in Melbourne and, you know, the flats are going for fifty dollars to $100,000 over the price. So it's in Melbourne as well as in rural regional areas. Yeah, I just think we really need to focus on how we help... Um affordable housing uh, evolve. I think it's really important <laughs> for the people that have lived here their whole lives and now um, might be finding themselves being pushed out of the area because they just can't find a rental and um, there's nowhere to buy. And when something finally opens up uh, to buy that land, it's sold in minutes um, to people that, you know, maybe have I more means to buy it than them. I think the big change is people buying property without actually seeing it, you know, buying it off. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, you know, buying it uh, without actually seeing and touching it. Uh, I find that's quite extraordinary. The, the bigger issue for council as well is going to be ensuring that we have the appropriate services for these um, new residents because the, um, they come from Melbourne and they have uh, a higher expectation of services, you know. I pay all these rates. I don't get rubbish collection. I don't get anything for these rates. You know, uh, understanding that we have such a large road ne network to maintain, such massive asset base, and, and also showing that we can provide the appropriate services, such as kindergartens, and you know that there's a planned process for our kindergarten schools and healthcare services. So it's a complex situation, and council can certainly play very strong role in all of that awesome well moya thank you so much for your time one last question and then we'll wrap this up um 
what Australian politician would you be uh, or sit in the shoes of for a day, dead or alive, and why? Well, um, you didn't say Australian there, so I'd have to say Nelson Mandela. <laughs> oh, I, sorry, I did throw an Australian there, so I'll, I'll keep you into Australia. An Australian politician, okay. uh, dead or alive, well, and why? Well, Nelson Mandela is my real hero. But um, I think um, I was really excited when Julia Gillard became Prime Minister. I was really excited by that. And I was devastated by the um, negativity that surrounded her and the criticism that she caught or being a big bum or wearing a particular coat or that sort of thing. Um, she broke the glass ceiling and I was very excited to see that happen. Um, I think Penny Wong, whenever Penny Wong speaks, I listen because she's such an amazing person and the way she speaks with such um, confidence and understanding of issues, she's always worth listening to. Um, and then I'm, you know, I've watched Misrepresented and I'm excited by the many and varied women that have played a part of our political history. And, you know, Zali Stegall and what she achieved. I was in awe of that. You know, some of the independents that are really standing up and making a difference and changing the conversation that's taking place in Canberra. That excites me. Awesome. Moya, you've been fantastic and open and I do appreciate your time because I can only imagine how busy you are right now leading into the 5th to 7th of October. Um, and I'm sure everyone might be able to see you on Meet the Candidate Zoom that's coming up. Yes, well, we won't have, uh, what is it, 39 minutes to explain ourselves there. <laughs> <laughs> no, that'll be a bit more rough. So <laughs> maybe you can uh, use this audio to send out to people so they can understand you a, uh, a bit better in the depth that you've offered us today. Um, thank you for your time. Okay, thanks, Craig. Thank you. See you. Bye. To see all the candidates in one place so you can understand who is in your ward and who you can vote for, go to craigprivet.com.au, found in the show notes, and the candidate you just listened to will have all their contact details in the show notes as well. Share the podcast far and wide, and let's have a really open and transparent election. Bye for now.